Good morning. Oh, man. I try not to be too weepy up here, but I've already been blessed by singing, reading the Scripture together, um, reciting the truths of the faith. It's already been a good day. And so, uh, man, so what we're going to do is continue our journey through Luke's Gospel. And we're in chapter 10, verses 1 to 24, as was just read to us. And so if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there, and we're going to spend our time uh, moving through these verses together. And um, as you're turning there, uh, I'll just kind of give you some of my flow of consciousness as I was uh, preparing this text. And I was, I was thinking about the fact that if I look around our country, uh, Generation Z, which are those who were born from around 1997 to 2012, are probably one of the most activistic generations that our country has ever seen. They have a strong desire to be aware of uh, and interact with cultural issues and matters of justice. They desperately want to belong to a cause. And this reality is heightened amongst those who are Christians in Gen Z. Cardis, who is a Christian think tank, I think he was very helpful, they produced a study in March of 2020, 2020 uh, which was just before the world fell apart, and uh, they compared the aspirations of graduates from Christian colleges to those who graduated from secular universities. Christian college grads, they feel strongly about taking a stand to eliminate discrimination and feeling called to combat poverty and injustice in countries that are not their own. And so another related idea that this study found was that university grads from Christian colleges, they care less about finding a job that pays well than their peers who graduated from uh, secular universities, and all the dads are like, uh, <laughs> you got to be able to put some food on the table. But uh, nonetheless, <laughs> all of this is motivated by a desire to fulfill the great commandment of loving God and loving neighbor. And so one thing is clear that this generation is going to go hard after something. And in my experience, it's just a matter of what it is. And so they'd rather, not, they'd rather be in the game and make a couple of mistakes than being a Monday morning quarterback. And so if we pass along a watered-down, melt-toast, wheat-sauce version of Christianity that has no spine, they'll move on to a movement that insisted has answers, even if those answers are sometimes questionable. And so the takeaway is this. Generation Z is burning to do something real with their lives. So we have to encourage them to be a part of something that's bigger than themselves with a deep commitment to God and others and inspire them to do something that is uh, more significant than themselves for Christ with their lives. So if you're part of Generation Z, or if you're even a millennial, or a Generation Xer, or a baby boomer, and you want to be a part of something that will change the world and last into eternity, this text is for you. Look no further to belong to a grassroots movement that thrived on the margins of society and was passed down by a bunch of social misfits for generation to generation. This isn't some flash-in-the-pan thing. Christianity has lasted for centuries. And this text calls us to roll up our sleeves and to join the movement for the kingdom's sake. And so let's look at these first verse, uh, the first verse and a half. Uh, when Jesus sends out those 72, it says, After this, in verse 1, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of them, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, plentiful, but the laborers are few. 
So this first half of, of verse 2 is plastered everywhere, but I think we can help it be even more impactful by understanding it in its context. So there's some similarities between uh, this passage today that we're looking at uh, with, verse, uh, with Luke chapter 9, where Jesus sends out those 12 disciples. And especially the overarching concept of dependence upon God for ministry. And so these verses have a unique message to glean, for us to glean, and we begin to see that in, uh, when he's talking about the 72 in verse 1. So throughout Scripture, numbers begin to link aspects of the biblical narrative together. One obvious way it links it together is with the 12 disciples, in, uh, which is really representative of the 12 tribes of Israel. And then Jesus commissioned these 72. This is analogous to the appointment of elders in Numbers chapter 11 which signified that the work of loving and serving the people was going to expand. So the same is going on here. The work of the gospel ministry is moving beyond the 12 disciples to a larger group. And now for us who are in Christ, the church, it's now expanded to us. And so now we know who is doing the work, and now we have to see what they're doing. And this is the verse, uh, verse 2 in the first half of that. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, 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 what's that? Plentiful, but the laborers are few. So there is a promise here that the gospel will bear fruit. And in fact, it seems as if in Jesus' illustration, there seems to be more of a harvest than we have laborers. And so as you labor, be encouraged because the gospel is still transforming lives. And so this is why I'm so encouraged. Even last week here, we, we saw the waters of baptism stirred three times. The gospel is still moving people and bringing people into salvation. And so uh, as people are brought into the family of God, they're also brought into the mission of God. And the question is, are you going to be obedient? Many of us, understandably so, are nervous about joining the laborers and we sideline ourselves because we wonder if we know all the biblical and theological and apologetic answers. But I'm always encouraged by the testimony of someone who has come to know Jesus. And interestingly, uh, when new believers often tell me their story of coming to Christ, I'm dumbfounded in some, at sometimes how ineloquent the gospel is presented to them. And, and this, I mean, of course we have to be uh, ready to give an answer for the hope that's within us. We have to be, you know, ready to communicate the, the gospel with as much clarity, clarity as we can. But we are not the primary ingredient. The Holy Spirit is. And so I love stories of believers immediately joining the mission of God in Scripture. You guys remember John chapter 4, the woman at the well? So after she met Jesus at that well, she went around declaring, come meet the man who told me any, everything I ever did. <laughs> John chapter 9, the man born blind, the, 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 the religious leaders were questioning him. And, and he was like, hey, uh, only thing I know is that I was once blind, but now I can see. In both of these incidents, in both of these things, they simply declared what God had done. So they led with their transformation in their proclamation. And so, uh, as he said, I was once blind, but now I see. But you might be able to say, I was once short-tempered, but now I'm growing in patience. You might be able to say, I was once intimate with anyone who would make me feel special, but now I'm cherished by God. I was once bitter, but now God has made me content. 
I was once filled with pride, but now Jesus has come into my life. We begin with how God has changed us. And then we talk about all the doctrinal uh, nuances and things as well. But begin down this path, beginning down this path, talking about how God has worked in you. He is working through you and in you. It leads to a conversation, not a debate. And so this is one of the most powerful evangelistic uh, tools that we can have, especially with those that we see often, like our coworkers or our children or our spouses, continuing to talk about how God, through Christ, is making us into his likeness. Brothers and sisters, join the harvesters. we got a lot of work to do. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about this text before us. And I'm thinking about people that I know. I'm thinking about the fact that people are wondering, like, where is hope? Where is joy? Where is peace to be found in this world? And, and guys, we have it. It's found us. And let's allow it to find others by God using us to do so. And so as Jesus sends out these 72 evangelists, he gave them some instructions. And some, there's some contemporary missiologists who use these verses that we'll read about in the second half of verse 2 through 16 to promote like a specific missions methodology. But this text doesn't offer us uh, any such thing. But this text does offer us is some, uh, a descriptive reality. He's, pre- or, uh, he's prescribing, sorry, he's describing what happened, not really prescribing. There you go. <laughs> And so when, when these 72 are sent out, this is what he told them. However, there are some very helpful things for us to learn. In fact, there are six foundations about sharing our faith that I'm going to walk us through. And if you're interested in talking about more of the methodological implications for all this and all that big lofty stuff, we got Pastor Zach for that. And uh, Dr. Anna Dobb also it, you know, in our going class. They'll be glad to talk with you about that. But now we're just going to keep it basic. And so we're going to talk about these six foundations for evangelism. And the first one is prayer. And so this is uh, the second half of verse 2. It says, Therefore pray earnestly for, uh, to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Prayer is a priority. And so in short, prayer is participation in the mission. And so how do we send out more missionaries? Well, the answer is not better recruitment although it has its place. How do we become more effective in our witness? Well, the answer is not simply better seminaries, although theological education has its place. The answer is certainly not better conferences, although those gatherings can encourage the saints to do the work of ministry. But the answer is persistent prayer. Prayer for God himself to raise up new workers in his harvest. I just love how this text turns around on, it, on itself. Jesus instructs them, to, instructs them to pray for harvesters, and then he goes out and sends those people out as the harvesters. <laughs> they were the answer to their own prayer. There's a lot to say there, but I'll, I'll keep going. And so verse 3 instructs us in the second foundation, and it's just simply Go. The first part of it is it says, go your way, verse 3, the first three words there. And a moment ago, I said prayer is participation in the mission, but it's not certainly the extent of the mission. And I like how the New International Version translates it. It's one word, go, exclamation point. Uh, that's certainly Danny Aiken approved, if you guys know what I'm talking about. 
And so we, we not only have to pray, but we also must do something. And Luke continues as he instructs us about our disposition as we're doing. In this third foundation, it, it talks about a posture of peace. And so in the second half of verse 3, it says, Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in, in the midst of wolves. Now skip down to verse 5. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. So our disposition to be consistent with our message. We are those who bring peace. We're the ones who bring the shalom that Hebrew culture talked so much about. As believers, we, we, we preach the gospel of peace, but then, therefore, we're vulnerable to attack. There are spiritual enemies that are looking to tear us down with angry words and even perhaps violent assaults. And this is often true of the early church. The enemies of, the, uh, the, of Christ made sort of murderous threats against God's people, and many of the apostles were martyred. And if we fast forward into uh, the, the life of the church, this is also true of several pioneer missionaries. They didn't pack with suitcases. They packed all their stuff in a coffin because they didn't expect to return home alive. But as Pastor Manny alluded to us last week, we are on the road towards resurrection. And nobody could take that away. We are on the road, uh, and just because that there might be a cross in our future doesn't mean that's our destination. Aren't you glad, beloved, that you know, when you have trouble on your, itinerary, on your itinerary, it is not where you are going to end up. Persecution might befall you along the way, but that is not your eternal destiny. Your destiny is with our Heavenly Father in His kingdom. And so although... Uh, we might face troubles as his sheep, uh, and, and as our shepherd is watching over us as his sheep, he will carry us, and he will not leave us, especially in the midst of trouble for his namesake. So continue on with the mission. And so we have this posture of peace, but we also have, number four, God's provision. God does provide, verses four and seven. Carry no money bag. No knapsack, no sandal, and greet no one on the road, verse 7 now, and remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. These verses underscore one of the major points of this passage, and it's our dependence upon God for everything. And so the disciples, uh, and, and then now these 72, they left their homes to follow a Savior who had no place to lay his head. And so this helped them not to be bogged down with the stuff of this world. Uh, Robert Horick, I'm butchering his last name, but he's dead, so it don't matter, uh, <laughs> called us not to, I guess it doesn't, I, nobody here knows him, and don't act like you do, so... Because I don't even know who he is, but his quote, is, I like it. And so, um, anyway, I digress. So, Brother Robert, God rest his soul. <laughs> calls us not to be caught up with these snares of tardation. So sometimes my stream of consciousness gets me in trouble. <laughs> it's bad me have a microphone, though. So these snares of tardation are the things that potentially slow us down in God's mission. And so we should not dwell too much on our meals 
or our furniture or our houses or these concerns of daily life because we need to be first and foremost concerned about this kingdom that's coming into this world. And I have to be honest with you. This is one of the things that I struggle with, trying to make this world my home, trying to make this world so comfortable, this life so comfortable that I, you know, sometimes want to just stay here and hang out and not pursue the mission, not leave and go and follow the Lord's call. The instructions that Jesus gives us in this verse are important. Bring no money bag, again, highlighting his provision. And then uh, don't bring a knapsack. Remain in the same house also. And the admonition not to, uh, about eating habits as well. These protect the missionary's testimony as they are proclaiming the kingdom. And the other, the other detail is uh, spending, or not spending extended time on greetings. And so back then, you know, this was uh, about the urgency of the message. Because those customary greetings, they would take a long time. It was like, hey, what's up? Yeah, yeah, what's, you know, you know, just, but like for a long time. And so he was like, hey, don't have extended greetings because we have a lot to do. And so, um, anyway, these prohibitions, they lead us up to what we are to do now. And foundation number five, we are to demonstrate and proclaim the kingdom. And so verses 8 and 9, it says, Whatever, uh, whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. (laughs) Just like those 12 apostles, the 72 evangelists are called to uh, have a ministry of word and deed. Like Jesus, their basic message was the kingdom of God. And as an aside, going back to my Gen Z sort of illustration to start with, this is the kind of word and deed ministry that Gen Z is yearning for the biblical mission of proclaiming and healing. But and the reality is, as the church now, Philip Riken says this, he's the president of Wheaton College, he reminds uh, us, uh, God's people, that the kingdom of God comes through the proclamation of the gospel, and then here it is, it's confirmed by the loving care of the people who proclaim it. Amen. So that's the word, proclamation of the good news of Christ, and then the love and the care with which we proclaim it and the activity that we do that surrounds it, those things together are a powerful one-two combination. And harvesting in God's vineyard requires both. And now foundation number six, perseverance and rejection. Starting at verse 10, but, whatever, but whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town... Cl- that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Uh, Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. That's that's so powerful. And I tell you, uh, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For for if uh, the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, then uh, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But uh, it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. So the 72 here are instructed 
that if nobody receives the gospel to give a spiritual object lesson to go into the city center and shake the dust off their feet as a sign of the rejection of Christ, that this is not fertile soil for the gospel. And so, and then he says something uh, sort of curious, it would be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. And so then, then after that, Jesus starts throwing down the woes, which I don't want to be on the other end of a woe, by the way. Amen. And so, but in all this, he's saying that it's better that you have never heard the gospel than to have rejected it. What does that even mean? So when I was growing up, I played a lot of basketball. And if we got beat by 15 to 20 points, you know, uh, yeah, I'm telling you, it made me mad. I'm an I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, uh, ultimate competitor. So I would memorize the, the date of our rematch, and I would just scheme and plot and wait for my revenge. But if we lost a big game on a last-second heave from half court or a bad call by a ref, I would literally lie awake at night wondering if there was anything I could have done the whole game to maybe change the outcome just slightly. And it was so bad because it was like the game slipped through my fingertips. This is the message that is being communicated to us here. So uh, people who hear the gospel but reject it will spend eternity agonizing over how it slipped through their fingers. An eternity of wondering, what if I surrendered my life to Christ? What if... Uh, I gave my life for Jesus' sake. What if I believed the message? What if, what if, what if forever? May it not be so of anybody. May we continue to proclaim the gospel so those what ifs aren't weighing on us as those who have the, the good news. So the application here is simple. It's the go. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And while this application is obvious, I think it, it, it really just, need, we, need to, we need to sit here for a second. If God is calling you, you need to go. If it's to go to the nations, go. If it's to, to reimagine your priorities in your current job, to love Christ and others better, go. If it's departing with a church plant, go. If it's being deployed to your neighborhood with a new intentionality, you need to go. If you're sitting here right now, and your heart is racing. That's the Holy Spirit talking to you. Whispering to you, saying something that still small voice is after you. We have to be obedient to what he's telling you. And for those who are my generation Zers up in the house, don't disqualify yourself from this, 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 these questions. I was 16 years old when the Lord began to clarify what he wanted to do in my life. And choices that you make in high school middle school can drastically change the rest of your life. So you are a part of this too. Come on, join the harvesters. How are you going to harvest? The question is out there. there there's so much to be done. And for those who are wrestling about your role as a harvester in God's vineyard, this is a good thing. Praise God for that wrestling. And even if your wrestling causes you to remain where you are, you'll, be more, uh, you'll have a greater intimacy with God. Because of it, you'll be more attuned with what the Lord is doing, and that wrestling is well spent. And so, I know I'm going kind of hard right now, but I don't want to guilt anybody. But there is heaven and hell at stake. And the good news is only good news if it gets there in time. 
So now let's look at verses uh, 17 and 20. When the 72 returned, it says, The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject uh, to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven, and behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all, and, and, over, and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven." The 72 returned from a successful mission, and they reported to Jesus what had happened. And uh, there are two important notes that we can glean here. The first one is that Satan was weakening. You see, Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. There's all sorts of ways that you can begin to interpret that, like with with Jesus seeing, you know, uh, Lucifer fall from, from, from heaven, and then, like, now we see that he continues the fall because the gates of hell won't, you know, prevail against God's church. And for now, the devil, in this moment, he's called the prince of the power of the air, but his reign has an expiration date. It will not last forever. And all the chaos that he has brought into your life will be thrown down with him. Yes. So I'm not sure about you, but this, this little interjection gives me a little bit of hope to carry on. Because sometimes it seems like the, the, uh, the adversary is prevailing. Prevailing over wayward children. Prevailing over lost loved ones. Prevailing over strained relationships in our families and so on and so on. And this reminds us that Satan's reign is temporary. And the second important note is that Jesus recalibrates their celebration. They were celebrating all that they did, but Jesus refocuses on them on who they are. Those whose names are written in heaven. And so our salvation is not based on our performance, as we know as believers, but it's on the performance of another, who is Christ. So being judged on our productivity causes laborers to cut corners. Anybody remember that Wells Fargo situation? That little kerfuffle a couple years ago? They, they are so much pressure to produce and to meet quotas and things. If anybody works for Wells Fargo, sorry, it's okay. Uh, I got a mortgage with you anyway. So, um, you know, they were so bent on meeting the numbers that they begin to make up fake accounts, like credit lines, and then they made up fake mortgages and things like this. This is not how the body of Christ works. We don't need numbers to, or, or generate, to, to generate a facade of ministry success uh, to belong. We belong not because of what we do. We belong because we are His. So rest in that. And then we can be free to like, live and grow in that. It's wonderful, that freedom that it brings. And so now Jesus uh, rejoices in, verses 20, in verse 21. It says, in, the, in, in that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, uh, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed uh, them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your glorious will. This is one of those wonderful moments where you get to see Jesus' emotion. We don't, we don't see that a ton. And it's a beautiful emotion of joy. And so the service of the 72 caused Jesus to thank the Father for his gracious plan. And so the reference to children here is not saying that only biologically young people can come into the kingdom. It's saying that only the meek can come into the kingdom. 
The humble are the ones who can receive the message of the gospel. And in the gospels themselves, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we see the, 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 the little children as actual children, but also tax collectors and those who are known sinners. But the wise are the intelligentsia, the Pharisees, the scribes, this, the Sadducees. And so now Jesus continues in the final two uh, verses, and he describes the way to salvation. And so here we go. Verse 22 to 24. And so all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone who, uh, to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. He, uh, th- then turning to his disciples, he said privately, blessed are, <laughs> this, is, this is so good, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desire to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear but did not hear it. In these final verses, Jesus is reestablishing the message that the 72 were proclaiming. And fair warning, just for a second, we're about to nerd out, okay? And so, so Jesus, in the, especially in verse uh, 22, he reestablishes this message by insisting that he, and, that he is God because he has the Father's authority. He also says that there's this intra-Trinitarian, like Trinitarian, the stuff between them, uh, this intra-Trinitarian relationship that we as his followers don't experience, but we're the beneficiaries of uh, that relationship. And because of that, we enter into a relationship with the Father through the Son. And if you missed all that, Jesus said it really, really simply one place. He said, I am the way. I'm the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by me. So after Jesus dropped this theological bomb on them, he reminded the disciples of the significance of the time that they were living in. He was saying, yo, this is a time of fulfillment. People have been praying about this, waiting for this. People were, were doing, you know, going to temple again and again, you know, doing Sabbath, you know, uh, doing all that they should have done, trying to keep the law, waiting for the Messiah to come. He's saying, blessed are you because you're seeing it. It's being fulfilled in your midst. Look around. This is a great time to be alive. But then also, we have a great time to be alive too. We have the opportunity to look back and see that the Old Testament was pointing to this messianic figure. And now the Messiah in the Gospels and the rest of the Bible is telling us how to live in light of that. And now we can be those who are the harvesters in God's vineyard. This is such a great time to be alive. And so my, I want to encourage you again, if the Lord is calling you to be a harvester, and he is, it's just a matter of what kind and where, you have to go. So here's three questions I'll just leave you with as we sort of uh, land the plane. Who are you praying for? Prayer is essential to the mission. Who are you praying for today? What's your posture? We, we, live, we live in a moment where the shock jocks win the day. But we're to come like lambs. Lambs weren't coming marshalling an army. They were coming as peaceful, peaceful messengers of something far greater. The power is not in the land. The power is in those who's, the one whose name we proclaim. And then also, what are you proclaiming? What are you proclaiming? Proclaim the fact that we were broken and now we're, we're made whole. And you can be whole too. 
through Jesus Christ, the one who has done more than me than I could ever ask for. I have hope and peace and joy in all these things. And then now for those who don't know Christ today, give Christ a fair shake. I know there's some Christians who have done crazy stuff in the name of Christianity. I know that there's some weird things out there going on in some churches, but I'm not asking you like, to, to get all of that. I'm saying, hey, look, first of all, I'm asking you to respond to Jesus. Who is Jesus and what has he done for you? Well, he bore all that you could not bear for yourself on the cross. And not only did he die, but he rose from the dead to have victory over those things. So now we can walk in that victory if we trust him with all of our failings. And so don't spend your eternity asking what if. You can know for certain today that Christ is Lord and he'll save you. Come, taste and see that the Lord is good. Let me pray for us. Father, you are so good. And I pray that we would be those who spread your goodness around our neighborhoods, in our own homes, in our neighborhoods, in our churches, in our, in our workplaces. God, we thank you for the blessing of being a believer. But with that blessing comes responsibility. And I pray that you would impress upon your people afresh that the harvest is plentiful, Father. And you are bringing a harvest and God, I pray for the one that you send to a place where there's seemingly no fruit for years, decades, and even a lifetime, God, but you are still working. And it might be a lifetime later that somebody else reaps that harvest, but God, we pray that you would give us perseverance in the mission. God, we thank you for a, a message worthy of sacrificing so much for. And as your humble servants, this ragtag group of people that you've brought together to be a part of this movement that's so much larger than us. We just thank you, God, for being able to participate in it. We pray all this in your name. Amen.